seated, you can turn to Luke chapter 24 in your Bibles. Luke 24. We're beginning a new series uh, this morning that will take us through the rest of 2020. Um, and it's, been, it's centered in our journey through the Bible together as a church uh, this year. We've been talking for over a month about that reading the Bible together in 2020. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands about how that's going. Usually when you hit February, you're dragging behind a little bit. Maybe you've had to have some catch-up days. Maybe you need some catch-up days. Uh, but I hope it's uh, continuing to some degree. And, and um, I would encourage you to see this journey more than just reading through the Bible, but see this journey as engaging with God. It's more than something to be endured. It's something to be enjoyed. Because you're connecting with the God who created you, the God who's revealed himself through Jesus Christ in the scriptures. And so please don't hear us demanding some kind of legalistic obedience uh, to, uh, to a plan. And if you're behind, we're not saying, hey, you need to skip the Super Bowl tonight if you really love Jesus and catch up in your Bible reading plan. Um, you know, you're not going to miss anything. The Chiefs are going to win. No big deal. But... Um, <laughs> But we, we want it to be something that brings you great joy. And, and so if it brings you great joy to block off time and get caught up, great. Um, but it's also okay that if you have to skip some sections, kind of block them off on your plan and come back to them in the summer, maybe when things slow down or, or maybe next year, that's okay too. Um, wherever, however you decide to walk through the scriptures this year, just make sure you're led and empowered by the Spirit and not legalistic rule following or trying to impress God or trying to impress, impress other people, you know. Social media posts, 74 days straight of reading my Bible. Hashtag blessed. We don't, it's not necessary. But we also want to not just read the Bible, but we want to take our Sunday teaching time to walk through the entire Bible. At least break the story of the Bible down into 43 parts that we prayerfully uh, hope over the rest of the year give us a stronger foundation to understand what the Bible really is and what the Bible really is about. Either maybe building a foundation if you've never done this before, or if you're new with us and adding to the foundation we've tried to, to build over the last uh, four or five years as a church. Uh, that, that will help us continue forward. Like every series after this year, we're walking through books of the Bible or even topical series. We can come back to the year 2020 when we understood in greater uh, ability what the Bible really is about. We understood the books of the Bible, how they fit into the entire story of the Bible. We use and abuse the Bible in all kinds of ways in the church. Not always using the Bible in, in ways in which the Bible is intended to be used. Now, I know that there are those segments of our population and those outside the church, maybe even some here today, non-Christians, maybe skeptics, who don't see or value the Bible at all like we do. The Bible is really not distinct or unique from any other ancient document or sacred text. So you have the Bible, that's for the Christians. You have the Quran, that's for the Islam. You have uh, the, the Vedas, that's for those in Hinduism. You have the Book of Mormon for those in Mormonism. Kind of all the same. Every group has their own writings to help them get through life. And if that's you, if that's how you view the Bible, it's just kind of another sacred book, then let's talk, please. Let's, let's kind of go through... Uh, the, the case for why we believe the Bible is the only book that reveals to us who God is. The Bible is the only word of God in which God has made himself known. But even for those in the church claiming to be Christians, we treat and use the Bible in unhealthy ways that can either dilute what the Bible is intended to be 
or distort the message of the Bible. For some in the church, they treat the Bible like a yearbook. What do we do when we get a yearbook? We go look up all the pictures of all the teachers that we admire and spent time investing in us and thank God for those teachers and what the, no, that's not what we do when we get a yearbook. Where am I at? Look, look, there I am. Man, they caught me just as I was taking a bite of food. It's so embarrassing. Well, they got me with a picture of, of him or her. Man, we were dating. It was a great relationship in September, but by May, it's kind of awkward. They, they uh, made that canon, you know. Um, it's even better when the yearbook has an index with names that you can see all the pages that your face is on and compare yourself to other people and how many pages they're not on so you can feel really arrogant and prideful about yourself or feel a lot of shame. You know, high school's great. Like, it does great things for us. When we treat the Bible like a yearbook, it's, where am I? What's meaningful to me? What applies to me? This book is all about me, helping me enjoy me. It's a roadmap to life to help me make decisions. Maybe that's how we treat the Bible. Maybe we treat the Bible like a magic eight ball. I need to make a decision, so I just flip through, put my finger on a verse, and, and that's what I'll do. Or maybe we treat the Bible like a medicine cabinet. Here's what's wrong with me. I, I struggle with anger, so let me look up all the verses on anger and do that. And voila, I'm a different person. And we know that the Bible has 365 verses that speak about fearing the Lord. And so I can read a verse about uh, fear if I struggle with fear every single day of the year. Except for leap year, that one day I've got to hide somewhere because I don't have a verse for that day. Now understand, granted, it's 100% necessary for the Bible to be applied to our lives. And for the Bible to guide us and help us where we are specifically broken. But if that's the only way we view the Bible, and that's not flowing from this foundational way of understanding the Bible, then we're going to abuse the Bible, and we'll see the Bible is no more valuable than any other book that helps us feel better about ourselves, or helps fix what's broken inside of us. The Bible will become like a chicken soup for the soul, or a Jesus calling book, books that just make me feel better when I read them, but I don't really get beyond myself. It's just self-help. I experience similar emotions when I'm watching movies or, or videos I see on my Facebook feed. And so I'm just basically jumping through life, looking for things to move me emotionally. And I think I'm engaging the divine, but what's happening is I'm just really manipulating my emotions. Because we're very emotional beings that God's created us to be. Like we even felt this tension in naming the series. We want to read through the Bible together, but the focus is not just a reading plan. So it's not just journeying through the Word in 2020. But it's also more than just how the Bible shapes us and our stories. Because again, we can run the risk of making the Bible mostly about us. But, but yes, we want to be people whose lives are engaging deeply in God's Word. And God's Word is engaging deeply in us and we're transformed as a people. So where we settled, and I hope the broadest and most accurate way to view the Bible because you might say, as you'll see today in Luke 24, this is, this is kind of how Jesus saw the scriptures. This redemption story of God. It's how Jesus understood what the full story of the Bible was about. Not always easy to see through the 66 books and hundreds of stories and thousands of characters. And so this journey on Sundays will be about that, helping us to see what Jesus saw. Yes, we see the original story and the characters. We see David and Goliath. We see Jonah in the well. We see Noah in the ark. We see all of that. But how do those stories help reveal and fulfill the story of redemption that runs through all the stories? So see this begin to emerge this morning from Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. Now, 
That same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place, and while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. When he asked them, what is this dispute that you were having with each other as you were walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things, he asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, How foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going further. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. But he disappeared from their sight. And they said to each other, Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Father, we thank you for your word. And now come and do this work in us. Help us to see so that our hearts burn as we would believe and follow Jesus in all of life. For the glory of God alone, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> now verse 13 sets the context for us. Now that same day, what same day? Well, if you look back to the previous story, the story was about the, the first day of the week, the resurrection of Christ. Jesus appeared in his glorified body to Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and some other women. And they got the privilege of being the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ. And if you know from the other gospel accounts, and, and Luke alludes to this, they went back and told the disciples, Peter and John ran to the tomb, and they saw that it was empty, even though they didn't see him. But it's incredibly significant and gives us yet another example of how Jesus and Christianity elevate the status of women. In that culture, the testimony of a woman was considered worthless in the court of the law. They, they wouldn't even hear it, just dismissed. They have no voice. If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, hadn't been resurrected, and Christianity was a hoax created by his followers, they would have never included this detail. It would have made their story seem less serious, less believable. Peter, James, and John would have discovered him risen. In fact, the only reason to write the story like this was if, in fact, this is actually what happened. And it did. Jesus did not see women as less than, but trustworthy to be the first to bear witness to the reality of the resurrection. But the second who would see him would be these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. One named Cleopas and the other not named. Now, we don't know anything about these two disciples. We know they're not part of the original eleven. Some suggest Cleopas was a husband of one of the women who watched Jesus die on the cross. Maybe so. We don't know. They were on this seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about a four-hour journey. And they're discussing, not in agreement with each other, about the events that had taken pl place 
over the previous week and weekend, and then suddenly they're joined by a third person in the conversation. We know from Luke's account that it's Jesus, but they don't see him. They don't recognize him. Why don't they recognize him? Well, it's a common aspect to the resurrection appearances of Jesus that those who were closest to him or knew him well didn't at first recognize him. Some suggest it's because Jesus rose from the dead. He's the the first person to rise from the dead in a glorified body. So he's the first person to rise from the dead never to die again. And in some ways, the glorified body that we too will receive one day when, when either we are died, buried, and Jesus returns and we come out of the grave in our glorified body, or if we're alive and Christ returns, we're brought up into the air and instantly transformed into a glorified body. We're going to receive a similar body. And in some ways, a glorified body doesn't look exactly like this body. We don't really know. There's no pictures or video of what this looked like in the first century. Maybe it's like a Harry Potter Jedi mind trick Jesus pulls to keep himself hidden. You do not know who I am. So that the mystery could unfold. Not likely. It could be they were spiritually blind to the reality of a resurrected Jesus because they did not yet believe he could be raised. And when they did believe later in the story, then they could see. Definitely seems to be the case, at least in this account. But for now, they don't recognize him. And Jesus steps in with this question, basically asking, what are you guys arguing about? What are you talking about? A question so profound that notice it makes them stop in their tracks. The text says they were discouraged, or your translation may say they were sad. Similar to how millions and millions around the world felt last Sunday when we heard the news about Kobe. Just life-altering, stopping your tracks. Oh my gosh, you see the world differently now. This is horrible. It literally, this reality of what they were discussing and Jesus asking about this made, made their life stop as they tried to continue to wrestle with what's going on. And then Cleopas responds in verse 18. Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been happening these days? What's amazing about that question is the irony. Are you the only one who doesn't know what's been going on? Actually, Cleopas, he's the only one who actually knows what's going on. Despite on three occasions in great detail, Jesus predicting to his closest followers his crucifixion and resurrection, none of them were waiting by the tomb on the third day. He told them it was going to happen, but nobody believed him and didn't understand it. We'll dig more into that in a moment. But what's more amazing than the irony of Cleopas's question is Jesus' response. So gracious. What things? You tell me. Jesus not immediately answering, but giving space for the Spirit to answer the question for them. You see this throughout the Bible. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. God comes to walk with them in the cool of the day like he always did, and he can't find them. They're hiding in shame. And God doesn't just send down lightning bolts from heaven. He simply asks, where are you? Which causes them to begin to examine, where, where are we? We're hiding from God that we've walked with and known all these days. Which in their case didn't lead to repentance, but led to, of course, justification for their sin. Jesus does the same thing throughout the gospel, asking questions more than just giving answers. A masterful way of teaching because the hearer will end up instructing themselves more than just being taught. And Cleopas responds in verse 19. The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. 
But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see so many facts of the person and ministry of Jesus confirmed in these words, his human nature and origin, his divine nature and power, his trial, sentence, death by crucifixion, the time lapse between Crucifixion Friday and Easter Sunday, the discovery of the women, the empty tomb, the appearance of angels, all affirmed here in these eyewitness accounts as these things happen. And the origin of their sadness, their despair, their discouragement is found in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. What an incredible statement. We had hoped he was the one. In their minds, hope was lost. Because in their minds, Jesus had failed. Why did he fail? Because he was dead. And they were still in bondage to Rome. The reality is... Everything necessary for salvation had been done. Everything that we preach about the gospel, Jesus living a perfect sinless life, Jesus dying a sacrificial substitutionary death, Jesus rising from the dead, all of that that we say this is the gospel had happened. But they were sad and hopeless because they didn't see the redemption they needed. They only saw the redemption they didn't have. Freedom from bondage to Rome. The reason the disciples were not waiting by the empty tomb, the reason Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they rejected him as Messiah and Savior, the reason these disciples were slow to believe is because Jesus wasn't the Messiah they wanted or even thought they would get, but he was the Messiah and is the Messiah they needed. The Old Testament filled with messianic prophecies. For instance, in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his Messiah, anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. He speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I would declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will give the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. That was the Messiah the Jews were waiting for. That king who would come and scoff at the nations of the earth and break them with a rod and shatter them like pottery and reestablish Israel as the dominant political economic power of the world. The Jewish mindset in the first century was the Messiah would come and reestablish Israel as the dominant geopolitical power in the region. Economic thriving would return. It would go back to the days of King David and King Solomon. What the Jews in the first century failed to see is that the Messiah would come, but he would come twice. First, the advent, the incarnational ministry of Jesus as a suffering servant. Prophesied also in passages in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 53, that his victory wouldn't come through the sword, it would come by the sword, come through humility and death and suffering. And then he would ascend into heaven and we would be in this age that we're in, in now, where the kingdom of God has come but not yet fully been consummated. 
the gospel would be preached, people all over the earth would have an opportunity to believe and worship and follow King Jesus, and then the Messiah is going to come again. That's what we're waiting for. Then there we, we would see the kingdom of God fully consummated, fully inaugurated for eternity and never to be changed again. No one saw that. No one. Well, there were a few. But they didn't see it clearly like Anna and, and Simeon in, in Luke chapter 2. They didn't see all the details. They just saw shadows of it. But they saw in baby Jesus, the Messiah. Most people missed it. It was a mystery, Paul would say, in places like Ephesians 3, uh, something hidden later to be revealed. Which is, again, this is in accordance with the wisdom and purposes of God from eternity past. It was the will and plan of God for this to happen like this so that the gospel would get to all nations and all peoples. You read this in a passage like Romans 11, verse 25. Paul writes, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now you need to read all of Romans 9-11 through 11 to understand Paul's full argument, but in part, it's summarized by this verse. The reason the first century Jews rejected their own Messiah is because God had ordained this to happen to get the gospel to the nations and according to those chapters, even to make the Jews jealous and see them one day return in such a way, Paul would write in verse 26 of Romans 11, all of Israel will be saved. Now, whatever that means, however that's going to happen, whenever that happens, we don't know. But we do know that this rejection of Jesus as the Messiah by the Jews in the first century did not catch God off guard, but was, in fact, part of his plan. And so the sadness felt and the hopelessness felt by Cleopas and the other disciple in Luke 24 is rooted in the fact they didn't get the Redeemer they wanted. They didn't get the Redeemer to conquer Rome. They didn't get the freedom from economic and political oppression. They're hopeless because they don't see the redemption he's come to provide yet. They think their problem is external. They think their problem is circumstantial. The circumstances of their life. If, if he would only fix everything that's outside of me, then I would experience the freedom I want to experience. External bonds of slavery and economic and political oppression. What they don't see is there is an even greater slavery than that. The slavery inside the human heart. The slavery of sin, Satan, and death that traps every man, woman, and child on earth. They didn't see that this was the ultimate freedom Jesus came to provide and that everyone could experience this at his first coming. The Messiah would have to suffer first, Jesus says in verse 26. The kingdom would first be a kingdom of suffering more than reigning. Glories to come. But not everyone sees it. The full consummation of the kingdom is to come. When Christ returns and every knee will confess, every tongue, uh, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. No matter how much better we may see things get in this life on earth, sin is still running rampant through the hearts of men and women and nations and people everywhere. Can't, we can't fix this. Only Christ can. And he is. So we have hope. But at this moment, they don't see this. And so Jesus helps them. Verse 27. The beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So that's another way of saying the Old Testament. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. In the Hebrew Bible, Moses, of course, the first five books, the Pentateuch comes first. The prophets were at the end. So 
from beginning to end of the Old Testament, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they get to Emmaus and they urge him to stay and eat a meal. And Jesus breaks bread and blesses it and gives it to them. And in that instance, they recognize who he is and he's gone. Again, what is this another magic trick? Like, how does he do this? We don't know. Luke gets this account from either Cleopas or the other disciple or maybe somebody who knew them. Because that's what Luke was about, these eyewitness accounts, these eyewitness testimonies to what happened. And in some way, they perceive that this is what happened. Like, we're eating a meal with him, we, we, we break bread, we see who he is, and then he's gone. He just vanished before our eyes. But their response, more important than trying to figure that out, their response is what's instructive. Verse 32. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? What did he do again? Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He walked them through the scriptures and helped them to understand that the scriptures were really about him. He's the only person in all the universe that can do this with the Bible. We're in error when we make the Bible about us. Jesus is rightly interpreting the Bible when he makes it all about him. He did what I hope and pray we're able to do for you this year on Sundays as we journey through God's word and God's redemption story. And our prayer is, God, make our hearts burn inside of us as we understand your word and your way as we understand the scriptures as Jesus intended for us. This would not be the only time Jesus did this. The very next section, Jesus appears to his gathered disciples, proving he is really alive. He let them touch him. He let, he grab, hey, you have any boiled fish I can eat? He starts eating with them. So this resurrection of Jesus wasn't ethereal and spiritual. It was very physical. Glorified bodies that we're going to have in heaven one day are not just floating around in the ether but we're very physical as we enjoy life on the new heavens and new earth that are coming down to earth. But then he says in Luke 24, verse 44, he said, he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, again, the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He does the same thing. It's an amazing Bible study with Jesus. Luke's gospel account actually continues with the book of Acts. And when you read this in the opening verses of Acts 1, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Another way of understanding the redemption story of God through the lens of the kingdom of God. Abigail and I are, are uh, taking a class on Monday nights, um, Perspectives in World Missions. It's a 15-week course that help us understand basically this. God's heart for the nations and God's desire to reach, reach the nations. Um, learn amazing things like the uh, per capita, the nation that sends the most missionaries into other nations right now is, anybody know? Mongolia, yeah. Um, 
Christianity is exploding in places like Iran and Pakistan. In fact, Iranian Christians are going to places in Turkey where the gospel has struggled to find fruit and seeing tons of fruit that we just haven't been able to see for years. You can be a, a Cuban Christian and walk through the front doors of North Korea. They're not letting anybody else in, but they're letting Cubans in. Why? Because of their shared political alignment, communism. So the gospel can get into places like North Korea now. Learn just amazing stuff like that. Why, why this is important, how this happens, strategies and ways to make this happen and ways to be a part of it. We can have one free guest um, each week. So if you want to go on a Monday night and check it out for free, let me know. And uh, love to have you come with us. But one article we read was written by one of the church's most gifted missiologists, Ralph Winter. He says this, The Bible is not simply a bundle of divergent, unrelated stories as it, as it is sometimes taught in Sunday school. Rather, the Bible consists of a single drama, the entrance of the kingdom the power and the glory of the living God in this enemy-occupied territory. From Genesis 12 to the end of the Bible, and indeed until the end of time, there unfolds the single coherent drama of the kingdom striking back. In this unfolding drama, we see the gradual but irresistible power of God reconquering and redeeming his fallen creation through the giving of his own son at the very center of the 4,000-year period beginning in 2000 B.C. This is tersely summed up in John, 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. Actually, consider naming this series, The Kingdom Strikes Back. But it, it felt cute, and we don't really do cute very good as a church. But we do biblical, thankfully. And that's exactly what we see unfolding through the pages of the Bible, and even today. Jesus understood from the very beginning of his ministry that this was all about him. The very beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17. Don't think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to fill them up, to give them their intended meaning. In John 5, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. When he, he did things like this, it was to show compassion and mercy to people who are broken and hurting. yes. And it, and it was to give a foretaste, like an appetizer, of what the eternal kingdom is going to be like, where there will be no sickness, sorrow, death, or pain, or suffering. But even the people he healed died again. So it's not like he just eliminated suffering from their life forever. But he was giving out little appetizers. This is what it's going to be like. This is what it's going to be like in the whole region. Some think he may have healed an entire region of people. So in that region for that three-year period, it was felt like the kingdom of God on earth. But it wasn't just to show mercy and compassion. It wasn't just to give an appetizer to the kingdom to come. It was also to provoke division between him and the religious leaders. So he would intentionally heal people on the Sabbath. And they would be really mad at him. John 5, 16. Therefore the Jews began persecuting him because of the, he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And they began this dialogue between them and Jesus about the nature of his work. How can you be from God and blatantly break the commandments of God? Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But Jesus wasn't breaking the commandments of God because Jesus never sinned. What had developed over hundreds of years is their traditions and interpretations of God's commands that they elevated as more important than God's commands. So you jump through our hoops, which, by the way, gives us loopholes and puts a burden on you, but jump through our hoops in order to make God happy and be a, a really good Christian. And Jesus just crushes that, just destroys that. And he's always at odds with them. 
So this back and forth debate happens throughout the gospel accounts. And in John 5, it ends up like this. Jesus saying in John 5, 37, the father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. In the first century Jewish culture, no one was more devout than these Jewish religious leaders. It was said that many of these men would have the entire Old Testament memorized in Hebrew, at least the first five books of the Bible. No one did it better than them. They read, they studied, they debated, they memorized. Someone suggested it was common for that to be the case. And here comes this poor peasant carpenter from the backwoods of Nazareth who haven't gone to any of the rabbinical schools, who follows none of the rabbinical tr teachings. He shows up at age 30. And his strongest words are condemnation to us. He has authority they've never seen. He has power to do miracles that they've never seen before. And they, they can't reconcile this. And he's coming at us more than anything else. And his words to them, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life because you're devoted to these scriptures. But you can be devoted to the scriptures and completely miss Jesus. You can kill this Bible reading plan this year, never miss a day, and completely miss Jesus. Unless by his grace you're able to see them as he saw them. Unless you're able to connect these words, these living words that are on these pages of these books or the, the, the screens on our, our, our apps. You're to connect them back to Jesus and have this Jesus-centric perspective, not a me-centric perspective. And when that happens, this book comes alive, and you are transformed, and you do have hope, and you do have joy, and you do have peace, and you become this person who can suffer but have joy. You can become this person who's bold about the things that really matter in life. And we speak up for the, those who have no voice. And we give them voice because it's at the heart of God. Jesus makes this connection between the word and himself and the famous analogy of the vine and the branches. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. And then a few verses later, we get a few more details. If you remain in me... And my words remain in you. Ask whatever you want, it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. That doesn't mean we turn God into our own vending machine. I'm jumping through these hoops, God, so now I can just push a button, whatever I want, I get whatever I want. That's what you said, right? No, you're, you're going to ask in accordance to the character and nature and will of God. Because you are in him and he is in you. He changes our wants. So we want what he wants and desire what he desires. So you find yourself asking for things that he cares about, praying for things that he cares about. I read a, a letter um, yesterday from a pastor in Wuhan, the city in China where the uh, coronavirus outbreak began. 50 million people, 50 million people? 50 million people, the entire city is on lockdown. 
Nothing's coming in or out. I'll I'll send this letter out. You can find it. Read this letter. How he's shepherding his people to love Jesus in the midst of great suffering. To not retreat or isolate, but to go into the suffering and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Recognizing that this is happening. We can't make this go away. But we're going to be the body of Christ even while these things are, are taking place. Jesus carries this idea further in 1 John when he says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and you have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John says here that there is a group of eyewitnesses who saw with their eyes, heard with their ears, and touched with their hands the word of life, Jesus Christ. And they were with him, and now we're testifying to you. We're, we're passing along our eyewitness accounts. We're writing these things, he says. And you read First John, it's all throughout this letter. We're writing these things so that. We're writing these things so that. So that what? So that you would believe in him like we believed in him. So that you would be brought into this fellowship with us that we share with us. So that all of our joy may be complete. This word connects us to Jesus, which connects us to God. Do you see the Bible as a book which makes Jesus known? Do you enjoy feasting on this word because it connects you to Jesus and keeps you connected with Jesus? Do you see him? Does it make your heart burn? To whatever degree that's true of you, like we just want to blow fire, blow, blow, blow air on that, blow spirit on that, blow wind on that. Let it burn brighter so that throughout this year and beyond this year, like we love the word because it makes Jesus known. We love to feast on it and enjoy it and share it and understand it. And to whatever degree that's not true of you, Jesus is here. The word is here. The gospel is here. If today you would turn from your sins and trust in Jesus and believe these words about him, that he really did live and he really did die and he really did rise from the grave so that by trusting in him, you too can be alive. You too can be brought into this fellowship. You too can enjoy him forever. That today can be the day of your salvation. Today. Like today. You can become a new person from the inside out by trusting in Jesus. So please, if that's you, please do that. I I encourage you, I implore you, I exhort you. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. And then tell somebody here. Because we want to celebrate that. We want to walk with you through life. We want to teach you what it looks like to follow Jesus in all of life. Let me sum it up. Um, Sadly Lloyd-Jones, Jesus Storybook Bible, a Bible for kids. That helps you understand the Bible in amazing ways. She says this at the beginning chapter of her book. Now, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of all fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. 
There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell the story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. Father, we thank you so much. You have not left us to just 